1: Welcome to episode fifty-four of the Fabulously Keto podcast, and today we're interviewing GP Dr. Ruth Tapsell. Now, Jackie was lucky enough to sort of be part of the public health collaboration of which Ruth is also a ambassador, and Jackie, you also read about Ruth in the Daily Mail. Yes, yes, there was a great big article, um, and she was front
0: and centre. Great big picture. <laughs>
1: So, again, it's wonderful that we've actually got, um, you know, health professionals that are advocating for the therapeutic, you know, use of a restriction in car- low carbohydrate um, diets for, particularly in the management of, of diabetes. So, it was really wonderful to sort of be able to speak to, to Dr. Ruth. As a, you know, as a health and medical professional, that they really support this, um, this use in, in her practice. But not only that, Jackie, she's also working in her own community, interprofessionally, um, collaboratively with her colleagues to, um, to support them in the use of, um, therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. Yeah, I think it's so
0: important that we have GPs out there and, but not only that they're, helping their patients, but they're, you know, as Dr. Ruth is, is helping other medical professionals get on board and understand the importance of it. Because I think this is the only way we're going to um, have any impact on metabolic disease. That's,
1: that's right. So why don't you tell us a bit more about Dr. Ruth?
0: Dr. Ruth Tapso is a GP in North Devon in the southwest of England. Three years ago, she came across Dr. David Unwin, who was using lower carbohydrate diets to achieve outstanding outcomes in his patients with type 2 diabetes. So having tried unsuccessfully over many years to help her patients using the mainstream approach, Ruth and her team decided to offer the lower carb approach instead. Since then, they have been seeing some remarkable outcomes with many patients putting their type 2 diabetes into remission, losing excess weight, coming off many of their medications and benefiting from a host of additional benefits, including resolution of sleep apnea and IBS. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought into focus the alarming high prevalence of poor metabolic health, The tragic collision of these two pandemics have motivated Ruth to spread the word to other health professionals that metabolic health can improve significantly within weeks and this may help to improve an individual's outcome from COVID-19. To reach out to health professionals across the UK and beyond, Ruth has been delivering a series of free, unsponsored educational webinars with her host, Midlands-based practice nurse Gail Jerry. Ruth and Gail have welcomed a terrific selection of speakers from a range of medical specialities who feel similarly passionate about sharing this good practice with other health professionals. Hopefully, as the community of low-carb practitioners continues to grow, this will lead to many more patients being offered this highly effective approach and becoming empowered to regain control of their metabolic health. Welcome, Dr. Ruth, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. It's nice to meet you both. It's great that we managed to get this together after a long time. We've been waiting a long time. Um, So we always start with where in the world are you? So I live in beautiful North Devon in the southwest of England. Um, I
2: live really close to the sea, walking distance from the beach, love being in the sea, love being by the sea. So, yeah, I feel very lucky.
0: Yeah, that sounds really good.
2: I bet the sea's cold though. It is dead, yes. <laughs> yes, sometimes I don't stay in too long, quick enough. It's <laughs> that that's
0: coming back to haunt me that I have to get into cold water and I really don't <laughs> want to do it. Uh,
2: you should listen to running Chatterjee on it. Apparently, it's really good for us.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, who was the one? Who else does that, Louise? Yeah, there's the cold um, water therapy and yeah, there's obviously. Oh, Vim. Yeah. The, the BIMHOF, Bim oh. the technique, apparently you sort of, you meant to sort of build up this, you know, there's meant to be sort of health effects of having, having this cold therapy.
2: Yeah, yeah, good, for, really good for your mental health, apparently. I, I need to, I need to um, sort of stop chickening out and actually do it during the winter. I, you know, I haven't been brave enough for that yet, but I, I'm going to give it a go at some point. Okay. Uh-
1: Good friend Daisy Brackenhall who has just moved to, to Hastings and so she's joined a, a a group that actually does this cold water sort of swimming and I've seen pictures oh. with her with like little booties and little mittens and this sort of stuff and yeah. it just does nothing for me. So I think, you know, <laughs> I just, she's a brave woman. So all, all power to Daisy for, for doing the cold water thing, but um not this chicken.
2: The hardcore guys do it without all of that kit. So if I go surfing in the winter, which I don't do so much these days, I have got all that, you know, booties and hat and um gloves and stuff. But yeah, no, there's a there's a group near here called the Blue Tits, which I think is a brilliant name for these middle aged women who just put their swimming costumes on and get in no matter what the what the weather.
1: That is fantastic. Yeah. And you were saying about surfing, I didn't realise that there was that's a bit of a surf coast on on that down where you are yeah absolutely so this is really good for for surfing
2: around here so and that's one of the reasons we're here so um my husband is a is a quite a keen surfer and um ideally would like to be living in australia (laughs) so this was sort of a bit of a compromise really living in north devon um because he can he can you know surf as much as he likes and and uh, you know i'll just send him off if he's got that waggy tail that needs to go off and have a surf and then he'll come back with a big smile on his face
1: but I, I can imagine that there are no sharks where you live. So I'm, I'm quite sure that's actually a really good thing, that you live where you live without the, the predatory creatures um, that that's Australia right, has. Yes, so, yeah, we get a few jellyfish sometimes, but that's about it, I think. Great. So, Dr. Ruth, why don't you tell us a little bit how you came to, um, well, in your practice as a, as a GP, um, using the low-carb real-food approach? So I guess I've been a doctor for
2: 20 years now, and, and I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I've only been doing this, which is very effective for, for the last three and a bit years now. Um, so, yeah, I feel <laughs> thoroughly ashamed by that. So all the way through medical school, you know, we were taught all sorts of stuff about anatomy and physiology and biochemistry, but there was absolutely nothing on nutrition that I could remember, nothing on sleep either. I remember, you know, turning up to these lectures, quite sleep deprived, wondering why, why, you, why does nobody ever talk about sleep? That must have an impact on our, on our health and longevity. Um, And then I did a job as a junior doctor in diabetes. Um, I actually was training to be a hospital physician before I was a GP. And part of that training was in in diabetes and endocrinology. And I remember then that was when the the cogs really started turning where I could, um, I was seeing these patients who were very overweight and clearly insulin resistant in the clinic. Um, and the medication the oral medication hadn't hadn't been holding it and so they were being started on insulin and, and that to me was just didn't make any sense because I knew that insulin was going to make them hungry and going to make me put on weight um so it just didn't make sense but that was what we were doing that was what everybody was doing the doctors the nurses the dietitians. so I was sort of going along with it but feeling uneasy about it and then it was eventually about three and a bit years ago having been holding on to that idea of if type two diabetes is a condition that we get ourselves into by eating a certain way, then surely by reversing that pattern of eating, we might be able to reverse the type two diabetes. Um, but it was only yeah, three and a bit years ago when my husband actually, who's a GP, works with me. Um, he'd come across David Unwin's work in um, Pulse magazine, I think it was, which is a GP, GP journal. And, and he was like, wow, this, like, this guy is achieving some incredible stuff. Maybe we should be having a look into this. So, um, yeah, lo and behold, we looked into it. You know, we, you know, we're pretty cautious practitioners. We wanted to make sure we weren't doing anything crazy. Um, but we looked into it and it was, a, it was a complete no, you know, it was a no-brainer. We just needed to crack on and give it a go. And I have to say, ever since then, we just see success stories every week, which previously we just didn't see before. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, all due to David Unwin, really, for blazing the trail and, you know, sort of
0: spreading the word. So back when you started practicing and you said you were in the hospital Mm -hmm. and you said about insulin resistance, did you know about insulin resistance in those days or are you speaking of it now as in looking back?
2: I, I, I did know about it because I remember, um, you know, there's a, a couple of signs, clinical signs that you're told to look out for as signs of insulin resistance. And um, there's these, you know, the skin tags and this um, sort of thickening and darkening of the skin in areas like in, under the arms, acanthosis and agrocan. So I remember learning about that at medical school as a mark of insulin resistance. So although insulin resistance wasn't talked about in anywhere near as much as it is these days, um, it was definitely a thing that we were told to sort of look out for. Um, but its significance definitely wasn't really... Um, um, you know, wasn't um, sort of recognised um, sort of in the mainstream anyway. Um, yeah. Now, having looked into it, I'm fully aware of how important insulin resistance is, not only for type 2 diabetes and that sort of thing, but also for so many other conditions that, you know, are overwhelming us and, and our health system.
0: Yeah. So just just for the listeners, what other conditions would you put under that banner of being caused or
2: excessive so polycystic is, is an obvious one um but also um you know certain types of dementia certain cancers Um, you know, obviously heart disease as well, macular degeneration. That's something I I watched a Chris Nob lecture Mm. recently, and I was absolutely blown away by that. A condition that was really rare 100 years ago is now, you know, common. And um, I've I've got a lovely anecdote about that, actually. So one of my patients who's got chronic fatigue syndrome and was overweight and endometriosis, there you go, there's another one. um, I managed to engage her to try a ketogenic diet a year ago now. And um and this woman's done amazingly. She really you never know when you talk to people whether they're gonna get it and run with it. But this woman completely engaged right from the word go. And um and she's had some incredible results, but the unexpected ones for me were her endometriosis has got a lot better, and I guess I'm measuring that by her CA125, which is a blood marker for um ovarian cancer, but it's also elevated in endometriosis, and we know she hasn't got endometrios, we know she hasn't got. And um, ovarian cancer because that's been excluded. Um but her ca 125 has come down massively. Um but also she's been to see her opticians recently who tells her that her changes in the back of her eye that she had that were markers of early macular degeneration, they've gone. <laughs> so wow I'm absolutely blown away by that. I'm like, oh wow, this is there is so much more to this than I thought there was when I, you know, when I started out thinking this is just about you know type two diabetes and
0: heart disease. Yeah. So prior to finding out about this and then in incorporating it into your practice, had you ever reversed anyone's type 2 diabetes? Had you ever stopped the progression? Never. Yeah, just never saw it.
2: I was, I remember, you know, catching a nurse in a corridor once and talking to her about it. This is in a previous practice a long time ago when I was quite a junior GP and saying, so, What does she think about, you know, reversing type 2 diabetes? Does she ever see it? And she was like, that nah, it doesn't happen. And I remember being a bit like, That's a little bit despondent, but I was also kind of. I just didn't want to believe it because I was like no it must be true it must be possible but now I never saw it and now I see it all the time and not just the type 2 diabetes but obviously the pre-diabetes so the future type 2 diabetics you know and I was in a meeting last night with a group of low-carb GPs and we were talking about this and we were all seeing the same thing you know 90 plus percent of our patients with pre-diabetes if they decide to go low-carb
1: they will put their HbA1c back down to the normal range again. So, by pre diabetic, you mean perhaps they're not quite in the obese category, they're in the overweight category, that they may be slightly elevated in terms of their Hb1AC, that sort of thing? That's sort of what? It's, what,
2: not, it's not measured by weight. It's all about the the, the diagnosis, sure. is just purely based on their Hb01C level. Mm-hmm. So, um, we use the um, Hb01C of 48 and above being type 2 diabetes. Um, and then 43 to 47. Actually, no, it's changed down here. It's 42 to 47 now. I think as pre-diabetes, um, and then 40. Uh, yeah, so 41 and below is um, is is normal. So actually when you mentioned weight, Louise. You know, we see an awful lot of people who surprise us with normal HBONCs, even though they, you know, they're heavily, heavily overweight. So obviously these are very efficient fat storers who have a very sort of high threshold for for turn, you know, turning over into into pre-diabetes or diabetes.
1: Sorry, that was me being the the you know morbidly obese you know but actually quite healthy and it was really interesting I remember a lecture sort of saying that there were these particular sort of categories as you said about the the fat storage and obviously the dysfunctionality of the fat storage and how inflamed that was and obviously at the at the end you know that was obviously the grossly diabetic person who was you know overweight to obese um, and obviously was diabetic but myself I was actually down the other end you know I was like morbidly obese but actually i still had quite good markers for blood pressure and i was coping okay obviously i didn't quite get to that tipping point before Mm -hmm. you know doing some interventions but um yeah so there's obviously that sliding scale of dysfunctionality with the the fat storage
2: yeah, that's right. It's really interesting, isn't it? How you can have some people who are, you know, relatively slim and yet have type two diabetes. So there are, and I think Michael Mosley, I think, was one of those, wasn't he? But if you put weight on primarily around your, your internal organs, um, then you can still develop, you know, metabolic syndrome. Um, whereas outwardly, you
0: might look to have a, you know, a, a sort of a normal, a normal um, weight. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say about the Tophi's. Yes, the absolutely. opposite end. Yeah. yeah. So Tophi is thin on the outside and fat on the inside. On the yeah. inside. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I didn't realise that um, Michael Mosley was. Well, is that part of his reason for obviously motivating? Um, you know, yeah. for the eight-week no, blood sugar diet. Tough.
2: Yeah, I remember, um, I watched, that, I think it was a panorama or something many years ago. So before, sort of this, I guess that was somewhere along my pre, you know, my sort of pre contemplative low <laughs> carb real food um, sort of approach. Um, yeah, I think I watched him going through his scanner, and they were showing how this guy had got, you know, fat around his liver, and that this was obviously, you know, having an sort of, impact on his long term health. Um, and so I, I think that's,
0: that's, yeah, that's definitely part of his journey. Mm. Yeah. So I'm guessing fatty liver disease is another one that is being reversed by incorporating a low-carb diet. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important, isn't it? Um, you know, if
2: we get um, ultrasound scan reports back um, on patients, and it's really common to see um, this, you know, they, they talk about this fatty infiltration in keeping with, you know, fatty liver disease. Um, and um, and I, I just used to file those reports because they were just so common. I thought that was, I was beginning to think that was just normal and there was nothing we could do about it. Um, but actually, I'm I'm really hot on that now. You know, if I if ever I see that report, even if they've got a normal HbA1c um, and normal blood pressure and outwardly appear healthy, they might have a normal BMI as well. Um, I will absolutely get them in as a and, and try and intervene at that point because that could be a really important turning point for
1: that for them yeah so, with your practice, I suppose what's the general sort of population where you are is it, is it mainly retirees is it elderly or have you got a, a really good sort of cross section of you know younger families as well, or is there a particular patient profile that you're that you're seeing in your practice? It's a real
2: mixture it's actually originally a farming community, so we've got lots of um lots of stoical farmers who don't want to come in very much um who are used to eating um you know, sort of clotted cream and jam on their bread, <laughs> as well as the as well as all their other meals. Um so lots of farmers and their families obviously as well. Um but no we've got lots of people who've moved down here from you know the Midlands or wherever to to retire. Um we've also got some young families, some of them are farming families, but but you know a real mixture. It's not ethnically diverse at all. It's a very white population, so we don't see the high prevalence sort of South Asian so much. We, we you know we've got a, a very small number of, of those, but it's it's mainly you know white farming
1: but do you tell them to they can have their clotted cream but they have to get rid of the scone or the or the bread if that's okay yeah that's
2: okay. yeah that's a really interesting conversation isn't it so that takes a lot of you know people have really had it jumped into them that um you know they they know that clotted cream has got to be bad for them you know but they can do it anyway but they it didn't occur to them that it's the the bread and the jam that's actually the thing that I'm, I'm trying to encourage them to, to stop yeah um, but yeah no, it's been great we're having. Uh, we've got, um, I run these um, groups, um, been running them for about a year, um, sort of in various different sort of formats, you know, over the pandemic. So it went to Zoom for a while and it stopped for a while, but we're now back in the Village Hall and it's absolutely lovely. And we've got this star patient who I love. I love now that he comes because uh, he's this guy who, um, he's a farmer and he's from a family where his par- both his parents died of, um, you know, sort of metabolic problems to do with kidneys or you know, diabetes or whatever. Um, and he also had a brother who dropped dead at a young age. Um, and he was a really, really big guy. And then something clicked in him about a year. So I think it was last March, actually. And since then, he's lost five stone. Um, and his, his HbO and c has now come down to I think he's 41 now. And it was it was never massively high, but it was climbing. It was up to high 60s or something like that. And um, he's now yeah. coming, you know, getting off his medication and, and he's absolutely chuffed a bit. And it's not just him, it's affecting it's his, it's his whole family. And it's lovely because him and his brother, sorry, brother-in-law and sister came along to our meeting last week. Um, And it was so lovely to hear his story. He's there as this sort of, you know, inspirational character, partly because he's a farmer as well. So it really does bust that myth that, you know, so many of my farmers say, oh, no, I I need to be big because I'm working, you know, I'm working out physically all the time and I need the carbs for the energy. So lovely to be able to hear this guy. He's very happy for me to share his story, by the way. You know, he wants to shout it from the rooftops. Um, but, yeah, no, he's really keen to sort of, you know, pass on the word that actually carbs were making him tired, not making him energetic. And he's got so much more energy, you know. That.
0: Yeah. So um, you've also been doing some webinars with doctors and other health professionals. Tell us about those. Yeah,
2: they've been amazing. I've re- I had no idea you know how that was going to go. So I first sort of came up with the idea. It was during a, um, a PHC ambassador's um um, get together I can't remember what it was now I think it was I don't know if you were there Jackie it was last November December I think and I was racking my brains thinking how do we help to engage more doctors um, and Gail Gary's this practice nurse who you probably know she's absolutely brilliant and she's always up for anything so Gail and I decided to start running some webinars that um, PhD ambassadors could invite their local GPs and practice nurses along to to show them that this isn't a really fringe thing this is actually something that's very effective and lots of doctors are using it now and nurses um, so, I was sort of, you know, Gail and I sort of got our heads together and was trying to think what would be useful. And actually, it's really snowballed. So, every month, um, so from January to June, we had these lunchtime webinars once a month. Um, we'd have a guest speaker on. We had Scott Marion, who's a consultant cardiologist, um, Campbell Murdoch talking about um, deprescribing, oh, Kaiser Sadra, who's a legend, who's a GP in Slough, who um, has got some amazing results in his South Asian population um we had um, Jen Unwin talking about food addiction. I've missed somebody out now. I can't remember who it is. It's been absolutely brilliant. So those are the lunchtime ones. And then we've been doing these additional evening ones as well, where, which have been a bit crazy because I've sort of crammed too many speakers into an evening session, so they've been a bit bonkers. Um, but, yeah, we've had David Unwin talking on that a few times. Um, oh, my gosh, we had a fantastic um, professor of nephrology over from <laughs> – over. he was where he was. We were where we were, but we met on Zoom. Um, he's working in somewhere in Austria, and he's head of a large um, sort of nephrology and dialysis unit in, in Austria. And it was really helpful having Marcus along to say about how, you know, he's using this approach extremely effective in his um, in his renal patients. And he's seeing improvements in renal function, um, remission from type two diabetes, lots of deep prescribing. So that session was really about, you know, busting the myth that um, a ketogenic or low carb diet is dangerous for people with, with kidney problems. So that's just a few. We've had, you know, we've had a paediatric endocrinologist on as well. You know, we've, we've just had some amazing speakers on. It's been absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah. And so is it just for health professionals?
2: yeah so that was the idea um <laughs> although lots of other people sort of sneak in so I've been doing these um Google sign-up forms and they've sort of ended up on Twitter and so you get various people just turning up and and to begin with I was um really nervous about that um but uh, also I've you know expanded my Zoom account so I can take up to 500 now so I'm much more relaxed about it now but in the beginning I was like oh dear actually I'm trying to keep these places for health professionals I don't want it to be swamped with you know we've had a few taxi drivers and architects <laughs> and just re- interested random people. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, pretty much anyone's welcome now. You have to obviously try and keep the balance, don't you? You don't you want it to be mainly about you know health professionals learning from each other. Um, but actually, interested people are, are always welcome.
0: So, how could GPs get in contact with you to to get on the webinar? if they wanted to I've
2: got um, a mailing list now um so David Oliver who's a GP in um um in Essex he probably yeah I
0: don't know it, me yeah
2: he's a PhD ambassador as well he's awesome so he set up a Gmail account called um low what is it HCP at gmail.com so David and I um sort of man that Gmail account so if anybody wants to join our mailing list that's a, a good way to a good way to do it or follow me on Twitter, not that I'm on there very much these days, or um, Health Results. So Campbell Medoc's setting up this awesome organisation called Health Results. So we, we sometimes tweet through that account
1: as well when we've got webinars coming up. We're having a bit of a break at the summer that we'll be hopefully getting going again in September. Brilliant. Really inter- It's really interesting what you're saying about, you know, the general lay person, you know, wanting to be involved, and I think that that's okay because, you know, as you know, someone straight off the street that goes to, such as, you know, the PHC conferences, or as mm-hmm. I did, I was going to low carb Down Under's, or you know, to low carb Breckenridge, you know, where, you know, as you said, it's about that pitching, but. If you're actually, you know, one of the converted, you know, one of the low-carb, you know, convertees, that's okay because they're obviously already, as you said, they've already contemplated. They've been through that pre-contemplation, contemplation. They're actually in that action stage. It actually helps them to stay motivated. You know, so I do think that it's um yeah,
2: absolutely. And so I felt a bit mean in the first month or two when we, you know, I had a a limited number of people that I could have attending, and people were asking, "Can I come?" You know, some of the PhD ambassadors asked me, and I was like, "Oh, I feel really bad, but I, you know, I kind of need to keep the places for, you know, for the health professionals." But actually, you know, you're right, Louise. It's you know, it's really important for people to help to keep them motivated, isn't it? So yeah, now we've got a bigger account, so any anybody's welcome. Maximum five (laughs)
1: hundred. But I think it's about also the community that you're building. So really, you should be. proud and you know you're actually building well on as you said you know we're following in the in the the giant's footsteps of say you know david unwin or you know as you said campbell murdoch and you know scott munro but what you're doing is you know they've started it perhaps they're the pioneers but you're coming in at the tail end and you're bringing it home and it's about that sustainability and sharing the load And finding tribes is so important. And as you know, being a health professional, that these interprofessional collaborations is all part of, you know, we're all singing from the same song sheet. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And it's, yeah, it's just making, you know, making people aware that this is a really good approach, isn't it? Because if you don't know, then you can't offer it. Um, But also it's about empowering um, doctors and nurses to actually get on and do it. They might have heard of it, but might not know where to start. So that was one of the, you know, one of the reasons behind the webinars is to really sort of give people confidence to get on with it. And, you know, what's been so incredibly special, because it's been really hard work doing it and, you know, adding it in around my busy day job as well. But it's been really worth it because every so often I get an email from somebody or a WhatsApp or whatever from somebody who's attended the um attended the sessions and just said I've got to tell you what happened today I saw this patient who I started on a low-carb journey three months ago and and they're feeling brilliant they've reversed their fatty liver and and their diabetes and they're de-prescribing and they're feeling so much better and at one point I was getting messages like that most weeks and I was like wow yeah it's definitely definitely worth it because then once you once you've seen that you can't unsee it can you, you just we, there's no going back up at that point
0: no and especially especially for doctors where they're now starting to see that they can do something and they can help people they're not going to stop doing
2: absolutely and that's why we went into healthcare was to help people so it's quite sort of soul destroying where you're sort of you know you're sort of just day in day out just trying to help people but really feeling like you're, you're just not making much headway with anybody and then finally you feel like you've got something that works and suddenly your your job satisfaction sort of goes up it's it's wonderful
1: And that really resonates with, obviously, David Unwin's story, you know, where he was saying, you know, he was almost at the end of his tether. And now this has actually given him, as you said, that job satisfaction. It's a new lease of life. And we we were speaking to Jen Unwin and it was like, well, he had plans to retire. But now, you know, (laughs) this is and this is really important for you. I mean, you're still mid-career or 20 years into your career that this is actually now feeling you've. That sense of hope, you know, that what what Jen talks about and what David talks about, you've got hope that you're giving to to your patients. So you, you know, all power to you, girlfriend. So. <laughs> yeah no I you know
2: sometimes I think about you know whether I do something do something different but actually I I just want to do more and more of this right now I mean the other stuff is sort of getting in the way really um you know I'm always sort of daydreaming about how how can I reach out to you know more doctors and nurses and 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 more patients especially with the pandemic I mean that's just been awful hasn't it just seeing this you know these two pandemics colliding essentially and and nothing being done to help people improve their metabolic health and suddenly we've got this um NHS digital um, weight loss program that you know gps are being incentivized to refer people to and i was just looking down the list of providers and it's very difficult to see what they're offering but you know from experience some of those guys they, they're really you know still offering the you know the, the low fat calorie counting eat less move more and and um and i just think why are you throwing all this money at something that really isn't helping you know when we can see from david Elwin and various other people who have you know published their data that this works really well why not do it this way
0: Yes. And I think it's gonna come from you, from from us as lay people and from you as doctors. So the more doctors you can reach, yeah. I think that's that's gonna accelerate the um uptake of it. Yeah, absolutely. Hope so.
1: I was just gonna say where well, you sort of said about those providers, but are they still providing the Roy Taylor? Is that the Newcastle, um, you know, where it was about that calorie restriction? So you know there's obviously the two competing um paradigms there's the Roy Taylor and obviously there's you know we can say it's the unwin approach and then it's obviously the other the other um standard of care sort of approach with the the carb counting so but I thought yeah, so
2: the, the, uh, the direct or Roy Taylor one I think yeah. that's the soups and shakes yeah. um, full meal replacement mm-hmm. thing isn't it yeah so that's a separate thing again so that ah. also is being is being pushed they were originally rolling that out um just in sort of pilot areas but I think they've expanded that now to to more to more um localities um but no the digital providers um that's a completely separate thing so that would so I would have loved to have seen you know the diabetes digital media low carb program um as an offering on that but it wasn't sadly I've no idea why, um, but there's various other um, agencies who are, who are doing it, um, you know, swimming World and, and, you know, so on. I know, mm. yeah, I know, Louise, your face, I, I feel the same way. I've got, <laughs> I, I, feel, I don't like to slag off any individual organizations, but I've got so many patients who've said, Oh, I'm doing swimming World. Well. It, it works really well. It's worked well for me so many times. And that's just, you know, they, they do well while they're on it. And then as soon as they, um, you know, stop with the support, they sort of often put on the way and more. And um, so, and that's why I love this low-carb approach is that people tend to, you know, and not everybody, but the majority of people like it and stick with it and find it sustainable because they just don't get, you know, they're not slaves to their hunger anymore like they, they might have been previously.
0: Mm. And they're feeling nourished and yes. their bodies are functioning better so they feel better within themselves. Yeah. There's so many different benefits. That's right.
2: Finally, they've got enough protein and fat in their diet, which they've been
0: denying themselves previously. When you started, when you found out about, I think you found out through um Dr David Unwin, didn't oh. you? When you I was you the article impulse that you yeah. said. When you tell talk us how you went from reading that article to incorporating it into your practice and did you have any pushback from other members of staff? So very
2: luckily for me, I work in a tiny practice. <laughs> so it literally is me and me and Sam are the bosses, me and my husband. Um, so we've got another a guy who works for us a couple of days a week. Um, and we've got a fantastic practice nurse called Holly, um, who is obviously the, the foot soldier of most of this because she's doing all this work in her chronic disease clinics. Um, so, yeah, no, we um, the practice was happy to <laughs> just to do what we what we suggested because you know, and they, they know that we're sensible people and we weren't doing anything crazy. Um, but yeah, so basically, we um, we produced a diet sheet which was very similar to David Onwin's one. We nicked his um, sort of modified it a little bit and gave him credit for it, obviously. <laughs> in the, um, and then that was sort of where we where we started. We sort of gave out this diet sheet with a bit of a blurb about you know what you've been told previously might not have been helpful for you. Try this instead. Um, and um, and actually, that very brief intervention is very is very powerful for a large number of people. Some people need obviously a lot more help support and peer group support is obviously really helpful with that too so that's why we then started doing the um the group work so again that was inspired by david Unwin's groups because i know that he does that so that was last january we started doing group work um uh yeah so before the pandemic Mm -hmm. um yeah so we so we give this brief intervention during our you know if we see anybody with you know type 2 diabetes or, or they're overweight or they've got high blood pressure we we tend to recommend the low carb diet now Um, And then Holly will see them in her in her um, diabetes clinics and she'll be, um, you know, chatting them through it and getting them to do um, food diaries as well. Because often patients say they're low carb and then they're really misunderstood and they're still eating wheat Weetabix and bananas and grapes and apple juice. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, and then the group and then the groups, which we've done in various different formats, as I was saying. But um, that's been really powerful for the people
0: that need some need some more support. Yeah. And you were recently—well, it's probably a while ago now—in the Daily Mail. Oh God, you? yeah,
2: <laughs> it was a bit of a shock.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. A- so we have a celebrity among us. Oh gosh, Jackie, I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not my—that's not my thing at all. I normally try
2: and keep my head down. Um, obviously, I've got a little bit more. Um, so I joined Twitter about 10 years ago and didn't really know what to do with it I wasn't quite sure what was the point but I kind of I did the same with Facebook I was like what do I do with this I'll have it but not sure what to use it for and then um, sort of when I started running my groups last January I thought oh I think I really need to know a bit more about this low-carb thing and we've been doing it for a year or two but I'm sure there's a bit more to it than what we're doing and so that was when I really started getting into Twitter and following people like David Unwin and Jed Unwin and um, Campbell Murdoch and various other people I've Discovered along the way. I hadn't even heard of the PHC at that point. Um, So, um, yeah, so and then I realized that actually it's a really great way of networking with people and supporting each other as health professionals. And I've learned so much from expert patients on there as well, people like Liz Laplar and um, Deb. Uh, surname me. Scott, Scott, yep, Deborah Scott and Mark Hancock obviously you know there are so many inspiring people out there who aren't just keeping it to themselves they really are sort of telling the world about it so I sort of joined in with that thinking yes this is really important especially when the pandemic hit and I felt like I really needed to urgently tell doctors and nurses and anyone that would listen that actually carb restriction is going to potentially, potentially save their lives when they encounter Covid um, so yeah, so that really got me going and very energ- energized by the whole thing. And then um, I got an email from David Unwin one day saying, "I'm running this Daily Mail C- um, series again. and wondered whether you'd like to be part of it." And I was like, oh, "Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so, not my thing at all." But I did it? I was you know, I was very pleased to be able to contribute because yeah, it's, I think it's I think it's been useful. I think a few, a few a few people, patients, but also doctors and nurses might have read it or a patient might have brought it into their clinic and said, "What do you think about this?" So it's all about just you know just opening people's eyes isn't it really
0: yeah and and like we said the more doctors that do it because um dr david has been in quite a few um articles in the daily mail but the more doctors we see doing it the more normal it becomes yes exactly more mainstream yeah
2: exactly i mean everyone knows that he does it because he's so brilliant at it and you know he's yeah he's done such a good job of publicizing it but you're right it's it's really helpful to show that it's not just him that there are others doing it as well
1: It is actually quite a balanced article and we'll put a link in the show notes to the March, um, it was March this year, um, that particular article. But it was actually quite well balanced, you know, whereas, you know, they probably trot out someone else to sort of go, well, oh my God, it's a fad diet. It's unsustainable. Mm -hmm. It's bad for your kidneys. Mm -hmm. It gives you that keto crutch. You know, nobody wants keto crutch you know it's just you know gives you bad breath and all this sort of stuff so yeah. I, when you're when you read it and it was actually quite and there was not just you There's obviously they had um as you said there was other doctors in it which is like well yeah. you know one can't be wrong but oh look there's actually three other people there singing all the same song
2: yeah absolutely and and Vipin, the other guy who who was on there he's a really great guy actually so um about I guess about a year ago I sort of I think I'd just become a PhD ambassador and I reached out to Sam Felton and said I feel like I need a little bit of um you know I need to reach out to some other doctors who are using this just because I've got lots of so many questions like about the kidneys and all that stuff and lipids um and he put me in touch with Vipan and Vipan was very generous at this time Ian Lake was another one you know incredibly generous helpful people who just will just give you their time as much as you as much as you like just to tell you you know what you need to know and just to reassure you and you know share yes I've had those concerns too turns out you don't need to worry about cholesterol you don't need to worry about kidneys you know all this all these questions that were really important to me um but yeah so yeah no it was a really really good article wasn't it and the keto breath thing I didn't know about that a patient said to me I don't want to do that I've heard it gives you bad breath and I was like have I got bad breath
1: <laughs> I, I kind of yeah <laughs> <Have
2: I? laughs> luckily we're all wearing masks at the moment so even if you have no one notices
1: <laughs> but it's interesting
0: I think it's just at
1: the yeah, beginning,
2: just,
0: isn't yeah. it? When your bodies are pumping out more ketones mm-hmm. than you actually need. Yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah. And then it settles down. Yeah. And it settles down and <laughs> it goes well. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's lots of myths about it, isn't there?
2: And then, and I, I listened to um, your podcast with Sarah. Um, she's a GP in Wales.
0: My so, hill. Yeah,
2: sorry. Um, and she was talking about how, you know, it's a very ancestral diet. And that's something I say to my patients as well, is that this isn't a fad diet. This, The current way of eating, the high carbohydrate, highly processed um, way of eating, that is the fad diet that's having such disastrous consequences on us in various ways. Um, but no, the the, the low carb, um, you know, real food diet, that's pretty much more sort of natural and ancestral than, than the current one.
0: Yeah, we've been eating it for millions of years, millions of years. Yeah. So, yeah. Why wouldn't why wouldn't it be right? And if you look at when when did food change a hundred and fifty years ago, yeah. and then that's when we start to see everything going wrong. So yeah, absolutely.
2: And I know that the um, you know the, the vegan movement will argue, but if you look at the blue zones, a lot of the people living in those areas where they've got very you know um, low rates of disease and and um, people live for a very long time, and you know they're often eating a predominantly plant based diet, which is quite high in carbohydrate and 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 that is that is true but there's no processed foods in in that in that diet is there they're they're very unprocessed and the same with the Hadza tribe as well the Hadza tribe they they eat lots of you know tubers and um they eat a bit of honey as well so they're definitely not low carb but they're unprocessed but once you've got type 2 diabetes that's when it's really important to yeah to avoid the carbs I
0: think yeah and if you look back and I can't remember who it was it's before homo sapiens but there was a a homo Something that was vegetarian and they just completely died absolutely.
2: out. Yes, absolutely. And then um, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm really respectful of people's you know cultural and religious and dietary preferences. But I, I see an awful lot of unhealthy vegans, and I, I I do worry that they're not getting enough protein and enough fat and and, and B12 obviously as well. So I, I think you, if you're really you know very dedicated to it, you, you probably can achieve a healthy diet. But I think it's it's quite difficult. I think it's a challenge to be a healthy healthy purely plant based person. Yeah. Will your
1: practice actually have um, space to have someone, you know, advising in terms of nutrition? I mean, you mentioned about Holly doing that sort of counselling, but could you see some sort of expanding role to have a, um, you know, a nutrition advisor in the clinic?
2: Yeah. So not necessarily in our practice, but um, you probably know that GPs in the UK are, are working in, um, as part of um, primary care networks now. So we work as part of a network. There's, um, so between this, you know, there's six practices in between. This, we've got 50,000 patients um, and the, the, a lot of the funding that GPs get um, is through the networks now. And one of those um, and one of those um, sort of funding streams is to pro- is to provide these additional roles um people. So you can imp- potentially employ a dietitian or a nutritionist through, through that route and. Um, So, yeah, so we've employed, you know, physiotherapists and health coaches and social prescribers, you know, through that route. So I'd be really interested, Louise, to see whether, yeah, you could you could get somebody sort of not necessarily for the practice, but for the
0: group of practices. Sure. And that could be really helpful. But you would need to make sure it's a low carb dietitian because if they're just going to spout out the general information that they're given then that's not going to be very beneficial. I 100% agree with that.
2: Yeah. And that's been part of my uphill struggle has been that the local hospital, the dietitians there, and I've been reaching out to them, you know, trying to collaborate with them and I've been inviting them to my webinars and stuff. I think one of them's come once, um, but um, sometimes they are um, okay with my patients, you know, eating a low carb diet, but I've had a number of patients who've come back saying, no, no, the dietitians have told me you're giving me bad advice and that I need to be eating carbs with every meal and snacks. Um, I need to be avoiding fat, and and the gestational diabetes. That's just something that I really, I have to really struggle with that because we see more and more ladies um, developing gestational diabetes, and and they and, and often we don't know anything about it. So the first I hear of it is I get a letter from the hospital saying the midwife has referred this woman who's got gestational diabetes, and I didn't even know she was pregnant because unfortunately GPs get bypassed once a lady gets pregnant, um, and then they say please kindly prescribe um you know whichever medication they recommended um for this lady's gestational diabetes and, and I just find that so sad because they, when I talk to them later on I say so what advice were you being given um and
0: it was yeah it was very carby which makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. that does not make that's sense. Absolutely no sense.
2: Have you you need to get Lily Nichols on. Yes. Have you heard her? Yes. she's amazing. Yes she's absolutely brilliant. Mm. gosh I listened to her on um um dan's podcast and my i I had to literally i think i was driving listening to this going oh my god i think i had to pull over and actually listen properly because she's an incredible woman isn't she she's really gone back and looked at the at the basis for the nutritional guidelines for pregnancy and it's clear that it's just a work of fiction um oh you're pregnant so let's just double your carb intake and and let's double it again and and not surprisingly it doesn't work oh crazy yeah,
1: it's really interesting where you're talking about, obviously, evidence, this evidence-based practice. And I know that you were really inspired by, obviously, you know, when you were sort of contemplating, as you said, you know, change a change in practice. And you went to, well, you know, you felt reassured by Dr. Unwin's, obviously, track record and how he evidenced that. Are you doing that in your practice as well? Are you collecting the data and you're sort of, you know, reassuring, perhaps, um, that yeah, you said, the, obviously, absolutely. the primary care networks and yeah
2: absolutely so we um so I do I audit twice a year and so I'm just coming up with my third audit now and each time I do it I'm sort of bracing myself just in case something's gone wrong but each time I do it I find another you know handful of people who are now in type 2 remission from their type 2 diabetes and like I said the the pre-diabetics get do amazingly well as well so I I absolutely love doing that in fact a friend of mine is a um she's a data analyst and she's going to help me this time because normally it takes me a whole weekend or sometimes two weekends to go through this and she's got this Python um, software which is absolutely brilliant it's going to do it in 30 seconds flat apparently and save me a whole weekend's worth of work but yeah no I'm really careful about collecting our data and and this thing about um, you know cholesterol going up I just haven't seen that at all and I know there's these you know these lean mass hyper responders I've not had any of those you know LDL doesn't you know sometimes it changes a little bit but not massively but we are consistently seeing reductions in triglycerides um, and rises in HDL um, you know, as well as other things, you know, kidney function gets better, liver function gets better, blood pressure gets better. There's nothing, you know, as I said earlier, CA125 gets better. It's just absolutely phenomenal. So, yeah. But how does that I have to be careful? You, you know, about it.
1: and how does that then translate to what you're saving the NHS? You know, and really that's part of your, you should be rewarded for that. You should get an extra bonus, you know, for the deprescribing and all those other on flowing downstreamy sort of, you know, healthcare costs that you're saving the NHS.
2: Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But it's quite difficult engaging um you know people further up the food chain than me in this you know I, I try to reach out to various people but because I think for GPs and practice nurses we're actually seeing it in amongst our patients and we're, we're this is a real lived experience for us we're seeing this every day that how powerful this is whereas people who are um you know based in the hospital or based in management they're not seeing it so they they're they just don't believe it or they're too busy they haven't got time to listen to it and oh what's Ruth going on about now you know um but I'm I'm really pleased because I'm actually you know partly thanks to the webinars um I'm really reaching out to all the local practices and now as a as a primary care network, we're now starting to offer the low-carb approach, you know, across our 50,000 patient patch. So hopefully the powers that be will start to take note when they can see that actually this network that I'm in are getting such great outcomes. Because I'm such a small practice, it's obviously difficult to, you know, to get my voice heard. Although having said that, mm-hmm. if you look at, um, there's a website called o- o- Open Prescribing and if you look on there, David Unwin has shown his data and, and Kaiser Sadra as well as GP and Slough. And they're, um, if you take into account the prevalence, particularly for Kaiser, where he has a high prevalence of type 2 with his South Asians, um, you know, they, these two practices are saving an absolute fortune on the diabetes prescribing budget. And we are too. So we are right down the bottom for our primary care network and near the bottom for the whole of Devon, which is a really big CCG. So um, you'd think they'd take notice, wouldn't you? And I've, I've tried reaching out to them and they you know, they just don't reply. but. They will one day. I just
0: keep. I just keep knocking away. You have to keep going. Yeah. You just have to keep going. Yeah. And I think what's the, an even bigger thing that that is intangible is the knock-on effect that now won't happen that probably would have happened, and you can't monetize that and you can't work out what that would be, because all these people will are less likely to get sick further down the line. Absolutely. We don't. We don't know what that is, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. but
1: you can obviously. I mean, if you're if you got some someone like your friend, the data analyst, to sort of be able to say, well, we're actually improving health outcomes, and there's disability mm-hmm. life adjusted years that sort of stuff. I mean, it can be quantified, but I think the big thing that like Dr. David has done is said, I've you know de- de-prescribed. And I've reversed one hundred people now, so the type two diabetes in this practice, and that, you know, extrapolated out to saving, you know, millions of pounds for the NHS. And I think, you know, that there's things that you can quantify, but as you said, your star patient, you know, here he is, you know, larger than life, five stone, adding, you know, that hope. And now as you said about his, you know, brother being unwell or he passed away or his father or those sorts of things around him, he hasn't got that looming on him, you know, on, my, on his horizon. You've given him, what, an extra 10, 15 years, you know, and that adds value to his family, to the community. So that's yeah, that's intangible, absolutely. as you said. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I I dream that one day Heartland will, where I work, will be this, will it be this little blue zone where everybody lives to 120?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I'll come and retire there. Because <laughs> I'm living to hundred and twenty. It used to be hundred and seven, but I think I'll, <laughs> I'll stick around till I'm hundred and twenty now. I did have a
2: lovely um you know, I've I've been sort of chancing it a bit and um I often invite people to my webinars um who I think, oh gosh, what are they gonna think? So I've I've sort of reached out to some consultants and and sometimes you get something a bit snooty back. Um that's occasionally, but the majority of times you either get ignored or you get a positive response. And I i um reached out to a an um Renal physician, when we had um, Marcus Seaman the professor of nephrology, coming along, and I sent him this thing, and and did he would he like to come? And he said, "I'm really sorry, I can't. I'm on parent taxi duty that night, but please send me the recording." Um, and I'd put in my email, you know, we're you know we're we're using this approach, and we're hoping it's helping to reduce the number of patients going on to develop dialysis that will be coming your way. And um, and he was really really um, warm in his response. Yes, I'm sure you're doing an absolutely brilliant job. There was no oh gosh, no, you can't do that. That's dangerous
1: or you 're actually you're taking away my future income that's that 's my child 's education that you 're stealing from me <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> actually we 're lucky because in um, in in the u k it 's a little bit different from in, in Australia how um the way that the, the, you know the funding is so i 'm sure the nephrologist will still have plenty of, of of work to do um you know it 's not like you know there 's not going to be any, and the hip replacement as well. I was interested in Gary Fetke, actually because he 's obviously just um um, you know, he does amputations and hit replacements and things like that, doesn't he? And so I think because of the funding mechanism in Australia, he's potentially doing himself apps and apps and business. So, um, you know, yeah. I'm impressed by that approach. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think. But I did. Have,
2: um, I had a, a, a really narky letter from a, a renal dietitian, actually. Um, well, we're on kidneys, um, saying, did "Didn't I know that this was a dangerous uh, thing?" And um, and so I I wrote to her. In fact, she was one of the reasons why I decided to get the uh, professor of nephrology on because I wanted for people like her to hear it from someone like him. And actually, Marcus has got type one diabetes as well, so he's a really interesting guy from a personal as well as a professional, um, sort of background. Um, so yeah so she wrote me the snarky letter so some months later I wrote to her saying would, would you like to come along to this um come along to this webinar um and she said again a bit like the consultant I can't come but please send me the recording so I sent her a recording and she was lovely actually she said that's absolutely brilliant thank you so much I'm going to share this with my team so you know that's quite a big kidney centre in the southwest of England so I'm really hoping that you know we might be again busting a myth about um yeah about how uh, low carb diets are bad for kidneys. Hmm.
0: So, how does this all play out in your own personal life? What What does your daily eating look like? And I'll, I'll add on another question. And, and what do your children do? Do they eat the same way as you do? Yeah, teenagers are a nightmare, aren't they? They just
2: want to eat junk. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I've always I've always been sort of fairly healthy, although I, I guess when I was a medical student, I remember a nurse telling me, "What, you know, what, why was I drinking Diet Coke? Didn't I know that was going to poison me? And then um, and so that was, you know, I was really pleased that she said that because I've not had Diet Coke since then. It's disgusting anyway. Um, but I had a sort of fairly, I'd say, quite carb heavy diet. Um, I eat a lot of pasta. I'm a runner, so I thought I needed to carb fuel for my running. Um, so, you know, I eat lots of porridge and sandwiches and pasta and stuff like that um and then when I started getting into this with my patients I then I guess about a year and a half ago I thought I'm gonna actually have to do this myself now <laughs> just to see what it's like partly because the people I was meeting on Twitter you know the professionals who were um using this for their patients they were using it for themselves as well so I was like okay what am I missing here so I thought I'd try it and then obviously with the pandemic um stable blood sugars looked like they were probably going to improve my chances of doing well when I eventually met COVID um so yeah, so I guess for the last year and a bit, I've been eating low carb, real food. Um, very, I'm not tempted at all by, like I, we went out for dinner the other night and it's quite difficult eating out, isn't it? But afterwards, the people I was with wanted to have ice cream and donuts. And I was like, oh God, and, you know, the sugar and the seed oils, why would I want to do that to my body? So I, I, I'm afraid I've had a real epiphany and I, you, you know, although, you know, I, I'm sociable and if it's a party, I'll have a glass of wine and whatever, you know, food is on offer um that I um yeah generally day to day I'll eat um yeah real food low carb you know I never eat pasta anymore never eat bread um never potatoes you know celeriac sometimes but lots of veggies um meat fish dairy although having heard Sarah Myhill talking about dairy I'm thinking well maybe I shouldn't eat so much
0: dairy <laughs> <That bit more. laughs> yeah so I've been trying I've yeah cut down on my cheese yeah. and I cut down on my cream but I can't cut it out completely.
1: Yeah. It's,
2: it's hard,
0: like, hard because – I love the song like Greek yogurt
2: with berries. That's the real go-to for me. Yeah. I don't know what I do without that.
1: See, and I actually, obviously being here in Bangkok, I actually make my own sort of like yogurt because obviously it's it's cheaper to buy the milk and then to make it. And, um, yeah, for for the longest time after, you know, after recording with Dr. Sarah, I went – I tried as – like Jackie, just reduced the amount of dairy that I was having. And I was actually making that egg pudding, that chocolate egg pudding that um, Maria Emmerich makes, which was absolutely delicious. And so for the longest time, I had that. And having a bit of a break from from that, and I went back to having nightly sort of a little bit of yogurt with berries and, and nuts. And I was reminded about Dr. Sarah saying about that upper gut fermenting. And it was just like, mm-hmm. oh, that reflux, you know, from there. And it was just like, wow, that's that's what I was putting up with. So there's things about tweaking, you know, tweaking your low carb as you go along. And obviously, you yeah. you pick up all these little bits, and it just explains some of the um, some of the experiences. But where she where it resonated was, oh, I can't give up that. And she said, well, that's the addiction talking. That's you need to give that up and you know that's why the paleo ketogenic <laughs> yeah, well. diet and you need to do this and it's like like I'm having the screams and internal <laughs> screams and it's like my life is fairly hard as it is trying to be low carb here and you know with rice and noodles it's you know it's hard enough as it yeah. is and it's my one little thing so i don't know it's it's hard
2: yeah, I think you've got to do what works for you as well, though, because if that's a deal breaker for you, Louise, and you end up giving up on the whole thing, then then stick with it. You know, you're doing so well with what you're doing. And I say that to my patients, you know, I'm not going to force something really um, sort of dictatorial down their throat. So, you know, we've got to find something that actually they like, because if they don't like it, they're not going to stick with it.
1: What about fasting for your for your um, for your patients? What do you recommend on on the questions about fasting?
2: Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big believer in time-restricted eating and not snacking. So the first thing I tell them is, is stop your snacking because we don't want our insulin to be switched on all the time, um, you know, so, um, so I, and then the time-restricted eating, so I try and get them to not eat after a certain time of the evening and then push breakfast back as late as you can. And, um, you know, and, and ideally, you know, so your eating window is, is, is as narrow as you can get it and two meals a day, ideally, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I haven't got my head around the whole extended fasting yet. I need to know more about that. Um, and again, I'm interested in autophagy and cancer prevention and stuff like that from that point of view. But I've got a huge, great long um, list of books and podcasts and, and YouTube tutorials that I need to wade through before I can start to really recommend that. I had a, a guy, a patient of mine asking me about um What do I, what do I do about, I'm on day three of my fast. What do I do about my electrolytes? And I was like, oh my God, I have absolutely no idea how to advise you. So I sideposted him towards um, Jason Fung and Megan Ramos, So they might know. I'm sure they will know. Ask them.
1: <laughs> and it, it is it is really interesting because Jackie and I have been well. We had this hundred day challenge, and um, so we we're just alternate day fasting, and you know, just extending that time, as you said, the, the time restricted eating, the windows between the two of us, and it was mm. really interesting that the results were so different. Um, and, you know, how well my body type responded to hers where her, you know, Jackie can sort of mention about that she didn't do so well. Her pattern of fasting actually worked, you know, doing it two two times a week. So, um, yeah, it really is not a one best fits model and um, letting your patients obviously experiment with that and, and letting them, yeah. giving them permission. I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, rather than mm-hmm. going, what the hell are you doing? You're going to die. Oh, um, yeah.
2: Absolutely. And I've got a very good friend who's done brilliantly with intermittent fasting. You know, she's lost several stone doing that and she's not low carb, actually. I'm not, I don't thoroughly approve of her approach because she tends to eat an awful lot of crap in the evening when she is eating. So, but I mean, it's working for her and it's sustainable. So that's better than nothing. Um, but yeah, no, I do encourage my patients to when they are breaking their fast to make sure that they're eating sort of healthy and nutritious food, because you still don't want these, you know, these big swings in blood sugar tea. I'm sure that's not not good in lots of ways. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How we're all different and how, um, and, and I remember seeing a program, I think it was probably a um, panorama again, and it was Tim Spector, I think, with this twin's. And then he had these two, two ladies on who are twins and one of them was overweight and the other one was very slim. And, and he analysed their stool samples and, and the microbiome was a massive, massive factor in, in why these two ladies had such different, um, such different outcomes from their metabolic health. So um, yeah so I'm really yeah. interested in that as well. So I need to know, you know, obviously people who take low carb to so the carnivore end of the spectrum, you know, I worry about their microbiomes. But I'm sure um, Paul Mason or someone has, has nailed that and knows exactly what to do about that. Um, but we're all different, aren't we? So we all define our journeys and work out what, what works best for us. But at least if we know about the microbiome and sleep and stress and all those other things, and obviously exercise as well, um, then we can sort of play around with with all of those um, all of those variables until we find what works for us.
1: Which it really is, isn't it? Like it really is not just eat less, move more, that there is all these other equations that sort of, you know, input into, you know, why we are actually feeling sort of hungry and our food choices and how that impacts on our body and that sort of, you know, psycho-emotional sort of stuff and the type of food that we're doing, as you said, about the highly processed carbohydrates, Um, you know, that it is this big picture um, which impacts on, obviously, the net result that we see externally and, as you said, on the blood panels as well. So, mm-hmm. so many factors. Now, Ruth, you've got two teenagers and both Jackie and I, you know, well, I've actually sort of moved through. I've got young adults now, uh, three three young men, and Jackie's got her two boys. They are complicated creatures, aren't they? So how are you managing mm-hmm. to to get them to think healthfully about the choices that, um, that they're making now that you've found low-carb real food? yeah it's a nightmare isn 't it because
2: they're you know they 're obviously subject to so much pressure aren 't they from their their friends um from the you know they 're surrounded by this sort of obesogenic environment aren 't they you can't you can 't move without seeing all sorts of you know, crappy foods on offer around them. So yeah, it's a it's a real uphill struggle actually with the teenagers, but but they they get it because oh God, I bore them enough <laughs> with all this, so they they both understand it. And um, and actually, one of them is is really really good most of the time. Although he horrified me the other day, He came out of the shop, he said, "I'm just going in to get some biltong." He said, "I was like, oh, okay, then." I've never heard him say that before. I was impressed. Um, and he does talk to his friends about you know about about carbs, and actually he's really helped one of his friends who's managed to you know lose a bit of weight, having been a really chunky but very very sporty guy. Um, anyway, so he came back out of the shop, not with a biltong, but with a pot noodle. And I was horrified. And I, my mum was with, with us at the time. And I went, Oh, my God, what have you done? And she was like, "Oh, steady on. There's no need to have a go. But I was just so disappointed because he's normally so, you know, just in the last six months or so, he's been really, really good with his diet and totally, you know, is on board with this. Um, so he's happy to um you know to eat what we sam and i dish up you know so lots of meat fish veggies that kind of thing Um, he stopped eating um you know we've all stopped eating obviously porridge and stuff like that too um so yeah so he's fine the door my daughter is slightly different because she's you know very attracted to junk food you know she really likes like pot noodles and pizzas and Chinese takeaways and things like that and unfortunately that's what her friendship groups into as well but I think compared to most of her friends I think she's probably um not so bad and actually at least you know she's eating what she, you know when she's at home she's eating the meals that we're providing so she's getting you know some plenty of nutritious stuff at home but I think the school thing is a real nightmare isn't it because um you know and when my two were little because we were both working you know. And put them into clubs, you know, before school and after school clubs. So often they would be being fed three times a day at school, and it would be, you know, rice or cornflakes or Cheerios for breakfast, um, sometimes with fruit because that would be really healthy. Um, and then at lunchtime, it would be, you know, pizza with jacket potatoes followed by a dessert. Um and then in the you know after school club, they'd be given another, you know, biscuit or brioche or something. And and I just think, oh gosh, no wonder, you know, no wonder we've got such a problem on our hands with with children becoming a, obese and developing fatty liver disease and type 2 diabetes at a young age. So um so yeah, I think the school thing really, really needs tackling, doesn't it? And and I feel a bit disheartened when you know Public Health England is still promoting the eat well plate. Um, because, again, that's very forgiving of processed food and it's very carb heavy. And I just think that's, um, you know, I'm not saying children shouldn't have any carbs, but I just think you need to be careful about just loading them up on carbs and depriving them of, of, of you know, protein, fat and properly nutritious foods.
0: Yeah. Well, they're, they're looking, I think the schools um, or the, the councils are are looking to keep their costs down. You know, they want to provide a meal for pennies. Yeah. And they're not going to do that using meat and fish. Yeah, so that it's going to be carb heavy. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, you're right. Money is money is part of it. And and um, there's a lovely project actually that's been run in Plymouth. So not a million miles from me. Um, called Groshare Cook and I absolutely love this project so they've basically um, they've had um, families and individuals referred into the program through GPs or social housing or whatever and these are people who have got um, you know metabolic problems or you know various social problems um, and and it's been brilliant because they've actually taught these families and individuals to cook from scratch and they do a deal you know they have to turn up and um, join in the cooking um, classes and in return they receive um, veg bags and stuff, and, and then the other side of it is that they um, they're helping to um to, to sort of grow and develop the local um the local providers. So local, you know, smallholders and farmers and stuff are, are being helped to upscale their businesses, which is lovely from a sort of a local sort of regenerative agriculture point of view as well. You know, there's so much in that project that I love, so I'm trying to get that going up here as well. And cooking projects will be you know will be part of that too. There was a pots and pans amnesty as well, which I think is a really really lovely thing. Um, Because people have just, you know, forgotten how to cook. It's, you know, they realise that people were just buying a microwave and then ready meals because that was easier, more convenient, cheaper than actually cooking from scratch.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And lots of people just don't know how to do it. And and, um,
1: did you come across, um, I think it was Claire, um, Claire who was also, uh, she presented at the PHC about Leafy, leafy leafy.org, and she was doing work with her local schools and um so that was also about that kind of getting into the schools and providing these alternatives and actually getting children to sort of actually engage in the food production, but then also rating their um getting their teacher observers to feedback on how well they they felt that they were doing in terms of classroom management so mm-hmm. that was another another sort of like a three sixty um a three sixty approach yeah yeah, and it's um and I-
2: You know, I think you'd you'd struggle to go in there and tell them that you know children shouldn't be eating carbs. But I think the processed food argument is a really strong one, isn't it? That I think people would struggle to, to um, you know, to contradict you on. So just get, for instance, a secondary school around here. You know, I think you can buy. Um, kids can buy um, fizzy drinks and squashes and stuff in there and I would love to see as part of um, I'm involved in various projects around here and as part of one of them one absolute basic absolute minimum is I'd love to see those things removed from school premises so literally there is water or or milk you know maybe we can get one of the local dairy farmers to produce you know
0: to produce milk that people can you know can have if they if they need a drink throughout the day yeah I mean I was horrified when my kids were at school that they couldn't get a glass of water they couldn't Uh, fill up their bottle of water. My kids have only ever drunk water now, saying that Alex has got more into Coca Cola now, but they only ever drank water and they couldn't fill up their bottles heck of water. They, they terrible. Not yeah. Fill up <laughs> the water. Where where are the fountains or the taps? They had they have no taps and no fountains. Amazing Jackie. Yeah.
2: Absolutely incredible,
0: isn't it? So actually, you know, I
2: also worry about my children not being brilliant with a diet, particularly my daughter. Actually, she only drinks water as well. So even if she does go into the, you know, hideous McDonald's, <laughs> which is on every corner, she knows not to get a fizzy drink. Occasionally she'll get a smoothie, which I know isn't great either, but generally she'll just, she'll just get water.
1: Um, so obviously being outside of the UK at that time, Jamie Oliver did a whole big thing on school, school lunches, didn't he? So nothing, mm. no traction from that?
2: Good question. Yeah, I mean, he he obviously raised the profile, didn't he? And it's brilliant to see the Van Tilken brothers are doing the same at the moment. So you know, I, I really hope that that will that will help to you know propel things forward. But but the you know the processed food movement is you know it's it's like big tobacco, isn't it? There's, there's you know there's some real pressure coming from you know as the pharmaceutical industry as well, isn't there? You know they they actually these industries are thriving on us um, wanting to consume stuff that's bad for us. Um so, yeah, there's always going to be, you know, pushback at various levels and um, whether that's by design or not, I don't know. But it's um, it is really is an uphill struggle to try and, as you
0: say, get, get traction, make this make this work on a larger scale. Yeah, I, I think the big the big food companies are going to fight it yeah. all the way. Yeah, because it's such, you know, they're hooking them in from such a young yeah, age.
2: Absolutely, and there's good evidence isn't there that having um being living within a certain distance—I can't remember what it is—from a, a fast food establishment—and um, is a is a predictor of poor health. Um, so we know that <laughs> we actually know that, and yet, you know, the public, the people who are responsible for public health in in all these areas, just seem to allow it. It's just, it just not beyond me. It's awful. Yeah, it is. But I don't
1: think it's necessarily. Um, just those fast food outlets i mean you go into greg's or if you go into your boots yeah. you've got your you, like your meal deals i was absolutely surprised and horrified sandwich chips and a like a fizzy drink all for what yeah. what, what a couple of quid well that's just yeah. you know oh i yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah, and you know when you're in the supermarket as well, um, you know often my poor patients I might end up behind one of them in the queue at the checkout, and you look at what they've got in their basket and their trolley, and it's just full of um, you know breakfast cereals and and processed bread and and all that stuff, and oof, it's just yeah, it's
1: hideous. Yeah. I've got a funny story. I went to low carb Breckenridge, and I was in the in the little sort of supermarket, and obviously Breckenridge is this little ski town. So there's one little one little supermarket, and I was walking up behind Andreas Einfeld, you know the diet doctor, <laughs> right? So and, oh. and unashamedly, you know what Aussies are like, so I'm totally put on the Australian sort of accent. I said, "Oh, mate, how you going?" What's in your basket? What's in the diet doctor's <laughs> basket? And I was just doing this full on sort of, you know, checking out his that sort of stuff. And true to his word, you know, there was it was all you know it was all tickety boo. It was all above board and that sort of stuff. And it was just like, <laughs> and then then I turn yeah, around no. and I say, give me a job. <sighs> <laughs> yeah he's a lovely guy isn't he I heard him
2: being interviewed by Brett Sher recently and I just I mean I love Brett Sher as well he's just got a, a lovely manner hasn't he but um
0: but yeah Andreas okay. as
2: well what a what a lovely guy and they just and they're so humble aren't they they don't pretend to have all the answers they, you know they, they freely admit that they're you know working out working out too they know that what they're doing is better than the mainstream but they haven't got all the answers they're plus you know playing around with protein and stuff aren't they and um but yeah, that would have been embarrassing seeing some donuts and Andrews. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it, you know, and then sometimes it's just like as soon as he walked out the um walked out the the supermarket, so know, I just really do that? And it's like, ah, it doesn't matter. It's all right. I'm just, just, I'm just one of those crazy Australians. And I blame the altitude because it was actually, you know, you're at 7,000 foot. So I was just obviously wow. just a bit hypoxic. Oh, I'm, I've got real um, sort of retrospective
2: FOMO, Louise. That sounds amazing. I haven't ever been to any of these live conferences. I've been to a few, quite a lot of them online yeah. now. But, um, yeah, yeah, I'm still fairly new. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to one
1: of those on there so it it is and that's where I'm saying about you're building your community you're getting your traction and that sort of stuff and you know this too will evolve into you know like um, come to Devon for um, a workshop and you know I had the opportunity to do the real food um, that was the real food rocks and um, that was really good that was just that social event and i also did that in um with the the two keto dudes over in keto fest and helping that out and that was amazing you could turn the whole town keto for a weekend and if you can do that Mm -hmm. with some science and some of that festival stuff that was an absolutely amazing um, opportunity so this is you know, and as I said, I mean, generally I'm just a lay person, like I'm not actually doing any health practice, but you dip your toe into it at those conferences and you, you you do sort of get, you know, get a bit of fangirl and, you know, that sort of stuff and, oh, there's that doctor on the podcast and even the people that uh, like Martina, you know, I was sat next to her at the PHC conference and, you know, that's all different types. And as you said, you know, the ambassadors like Liz Laplace and it's just mm-hmm. All strata, all strata. You know, it crosses yeah. all boundaries, and I think that's the great thing about the community. So, yeah. thank you so much for your contribution in your little part of the world, and keep fighting the good fight. Yeah.
0: So, how how can people get in contact with you on social media so
2: i'm i'm on twitter so um just rooftops or whatever it is at rooftops that's it <laughs> um and then this um this gmail account i mentioned earlier so lowcarbhcp@gmail.com. at if anyone wants to go on our mailing list um for you know for the for the webinars then that's a good way um of, of contacting me or david oliver on that one Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not that active on Twitter, but I'm kind of there sort of having a peek to make sure I'm not missing out on too
0: much and I contribute occasionally. Great. And so we always ask our guests to give us three top tips for our listeners yeah okay so oh gosh I should
2: have said actually if anybody you know listens to this and thinks they want to give this diet a go and they're not doing it already and if you're on any medication it's a really good idea to talk to your GP um, or your practice nurse first because um, you know if people are on insulin and um, and they suddenly cut their carbs and they they can have some horrendous hypos so um, so definitely don't just do this if you're on medication or if you've got any other reason although there's not that many reasons not to to be honest um, but obviously, this isn't this isn't personal
0: advice. This is just something of describing what I'm doing with my patients. Um, but the- so I want to ask you something yeah. there because you're giving the advice that they need to go and see their doctor to get their yeah. medication looked at, that, which is what I tell my clients yeah. as well. But if they've got a doctor that is not open to hearing about low carb how do they navigate yeah that?
2: mindful isn't it so i would take along that article that um david unwin camber murdoch and david Cavan wrote and um, that's in the bjgp in fact it's worth putting it in the show notes isn't it um so and that's called adapting medication for a low carbohydrate diet or something like that have you seen that article it's a mm. really good one it's um yeah so it's definitely worth taking that along um so um, and if they've got a relationship with a practice nurse and they feel that would be appropriate to go that route instead, then that would be entirely reasonable. But yeah, Jackie, I mean, such a good point, because what, you, what I worry about is that somebody will go, I really want to do this, but my GP isn't going to support me doing this. Um, and that's how I think so many people end up being so active on Twitter and social media generally is because they've not had the support in their you know, from their own primary care team. And so they've had to seek support elsewhere, you know, through social media. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I would take along that article. That's a really good start. And actually, there is, you know, it, it, you know, people sometimes. I know that. Um, What's he called? Um, lovely guy, he's a an anesthetist Sean Scott in um, Oxford. Yeah. yeah, he's absolutely brilliant, um, and he gives patients. He sees patients pre, in pre-op clinics, um, and obviously wants them to optimise their med- their metabolic health before he um, he assists them. You know, while they're going down their surgical route, um, and he often I think gives out that article as well. Um, and so I think some patients just get on and do it without going to you know see their GP or speak to their GP about it. Hmm. So yeah, so, um, so, yeah, if you're going to have a go with it, then do it safely. Um, and you might want to do it gently as well. You might not want to go from eating, you know, 300 grams of carbs to 50 grams of carbs overnight because you might not feel very well if you did it very abruptly like that. You might want to take a, you know, a few weeks to get there and so but I would say cut out processed food I think that's really important I I feel a bit worried when people switch to a a highly processed low-carb diet I'm Mm -hmm. not sure that's going to be particularly good for you either partly because of the seed oils so I I always say avoid avoid the vegetable oils avoid the seed oils I think there's there is a huge amount of evidence coming through that these are these are really not very good for us at all Um, Yeah. yeah and obviously cut out cut out sugar and and also you know it sounds a bit you know, corny but be be kind to yourself and if you if you trip up along the way then don't beat yourself up over it you know you, you just get back on and find find what works for you keep an open mind um and don't let people tell you that you're doing something dangerous because you're not eating you know carbohydrates because actually you know there's you know just like with the seed oils there's so much evidence that a diet that's very rich in carbohydrates is, is probably not not good for a lot of us
0: hmm. yeah, i don't know if that place. was three or not <laughs> that that was yeah that was good
1: that's all good. Um yeah, so that was that's some very sound advice and um I think we could sort of be a bit of a corny pun and sort of say well that's what the doctor has ordered. So just go and do it. <laughs> do it safely, <laughs> gently be kind to yourself, but, you know, consult a doctor if you're on medications. So that sounds like yeah. a really fine prescription. So, well, <laughs> oh my gosh. She's on a roll here. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. So thank you, Dr. Ruth, for being with us. It's been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's lovely meeting you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Ruth because for me, I just love hearing about doctors, that, GPs particularly, that are out there and helping their patients, uh, making changes so that they you know, drugs are an option, but there's also an alternative route if they want to take it. And for me, I just, I just in awe of all these doctors that are coming up now, um, particularly through the PHG. But Ruth also is educating medical professionals that there there is another way. And I think that's so important. And the more we get the word out there, the more impact we're going to have.
1: Absolutely. And I think the other thing is, as we've heard on the flip side of that, you know, we've had a number of um, our guests, our podcast guests, and just only the other day with, with Hannah, you know, her lived experience of managing type 1 diabetes and not having this as an option, which she was obviously feeling very angry about. And here we have Dr. Ruth, who's not only using it therapeutically in her practice, but also supporting her colleagues, you know, and that's the important part as well that, as you said, how can we get the message out? And we've got somebody who's willing in their own time through the practice network in her region supporting her colleagues, you know, with continuing education. And that's a really important part in, as you said, getting you know getting and measuring that impact but the sustainability of it as well so i think that that's really fantastic that she's connected with a phc again yeah
0: and i think the other important thing to note is that she wasn't metabolically sick she wasn't overweight but she was still open to the um, option of doing something to help her patients i think that's really impactful as well
1: The other thing with her community as well, and I think that's part of that sustainability that she mentioned a couple of uh, the pots and pans, you know, where... You're really going back to that grassroots level, and I know Jackie, you say that that's really where the movement needs to begin with, and that's where the change is going to be coming from, is at that community level, you know, where she was talking about the grow share and cook, you know, you know those community gardens, those community markets, you know, not only is she doing that through obviously the patient's impact, you know, her patient experts but also, again, at the colleague level. So there seems to be that synergies and connectedness with, you know, the professionals as well as the consumer. And I think that that's a real, you know, feather in the cap of Dr. Ruth that she's, um, you know, taking this approach. Yeah. So she should be really proud. Absolutely. So, Jackie, where can we get the show notes for this episode? So
0: the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero five four. search for fabulously keto on facebook our facebook page is called fabulously keto and you can follow us there or you can follow us on twitter our handle is fabulously keto or follow us on instagram fabulously keto one did you enjoy the show let us know you listened by tagging us in your insta story or instagram post using the handle fabulously keto one and the hashtag tfkp